Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Eat Well Podcast. I'm excited to be joined by my friend, Sandra Riches. She's the Executive Director of Adventure Smart. Now, if you don't know what Adventure Smart does, uh, they spend a lot of time doing outdoor education for folks to be safer out in when they're out on adventures in, uh, in wild places. And uh, the mandate and what they're trying to do is how to reduce the frequency and severity of searches in British Columbia and sort of search and rescue calls in British Columbia. So Sandra is actually an old friend of mine, and I'll, I'll probably get into that once I introduce her here or get her out to say hello. Um, but she's joining me now, and we're going to talk about um, adventure smart planning in the context of hunting. I know that Sandra does a lot of work in ed- educating folks who are out hitting the trails or out skiing. Uh, but I think there's a lot of people who could use some of the messaging in our community as hunters to make uh, safer trips and to reduce the severity uh, of any potential uh, searches that may happen for folks who are out there hunting and gathering wild food. So welcome, Sandra. Nice to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to be back in your space and uh, hang out with you for a bit, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Cool. So where where where, where are you sitting? What do you, where, whereabouts are you? I'm in uh, I'm in North Vancouver tonight. Sometimes I'm in Whistler, but uh, tonight I'm in North Vancouver in my humble abode. And uh, our office for BC Adventure Smarts over in Burnaby, and then this winter we have a field office actually in Revelstoke, so that's fairly cool. But to me, for me tonight, uh, North Vancouver. Cool. Okay, so so we I've actually met you. Uh, I don't even want to say how long ago, but when I first came in, you actually hired me <laughs> in my first full time job with Bert, uh, BC Parks, and uh, there was. Uh, three jobs to choose from uh, between the different uh, uh, senior park ranger jobs uh, throughout the South Coast region. And, and and you had said, well, if you want to come work for me in North Vancouver, you have to put your ski boots on in the morning and then come to work. And I, <laughs> that's what sold me. I was like, well, I get to like ski all day for work. And and and, and you didn't lie that, that the gig there for the North Van senior park ranger was you, you ski around the North Shore mountains and maintain winter routes and try to well make make the the winter snowshoeing and skiing experience safer for for park visitors and uh, that was a lot of fun so so what so now so you you've moved on from parks so tell me about what your what your program or your project is now as the executive director with adventure smart yeah and those were good times back then with bc parks man that was fun those are good memories actually there's so many good good times uh, i still feel like it's home when i visit but my, my career's kind of um grown and 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 uh, cruised along, I'd say, and I've been really thrilled with it all along the way. And it was a great start with Parks, but now with uh, BC Adventure Smart, I'm the executive director, and then I'm also the coordinator for Adventure Smart on national level. So we were really lucky when Adventure Smart started in BC almost 17 years ago. Uh, after our first five years, based on our provincial success, it went national. So there is representation in every province and territory. But what's really cool and unique about BC is we are 100% financially supported by the BC Search and Rescue Association. Um, we are their program. They created it. And, uh, and so we educate uh, outdoor enthusiasts, all ages, all demographics, all seasons, really on how everyone can be more prepared, understand the activities that they're choosing to do based on risk management, and reduce the number and severity of search and rescue calls. It falls back to preparation, knowing what to do. We call it the three T's, which we can talk about in a sec. Uh, and the whole idea is, is um, understanding your risks, mitigating them, and then that actually helps those SAR volunteers. Okay, cool. So I think what's what I think is interesting, and maybe where a gap for for me is is really understanding how 
the search and rescue community. So, okay, let, let's just take one step back. It's super common that people go out for a hike, something unexpected happens, they get off the trail, they're disoriented, weather comes in, they get wet, cold, disoriented, they can't make it back to um, back back to the trail or back to the vehicle, back home. Um, tell me about what happens next. Yeah, so let's look at it on a provincial level, uh, 12 months a year. So out of the 12 months a year, BC has roughly 1,700 calls a year. That's a lot. That's so 1,700 calls for like people that are lost or that need finding, that need searching and rescuing. You got it. From hikers to sledders to mountain bikers to skiers to ATV to driving, boating, swimming, camping, hunting, foraging. The list is long. 1,700 times a year just in BC. Just in BC. So I always like to throw that number out there because it weighs heavy. And it's something that we all need to place some energy on. And and uh, it's really important how all of that happens, actually. So let's say I was out for a snowshoe and I needed help. Uh, I would phone 911. That's easy. That's the start. Uh, mm-hmm. The process of stopping and staying in one area is key, but we can talk about what you need to do as an individual. But the actual call is to 911. Then that goes to, obviously, we all know, we were taught when we were little, uh, that goes to police or our CMP. So they're the tasking um, agency of all search and rescue calls throughout the province of BC. So that call goes to police or RCMP based on the region, the user, the location, back country, front country. They will then task out that local search and rescue group uh, based on their abilities. If it's swift water, avalanche rescue, high angle, um, inland waters, air, whatever it is, they would task out that local search and rescue group. And then that local search and rescue group starts the process of searching for you after they gather, collect, meet at command, figure out all the details on how they can safely, and I'll reiterate safely, start the process. Uh, Their safety will come first and the decision making to um, play out that call will be based on their safety first to make sure that they can get to you safely and bring you home. Yeah, I remember actually what... Actually, my first day when I took on the the senior park ranger job in uh, it, on the North Shore there, and there was um, I was driving up Mount Seymour, and all of a sudden there was like flashing lights and vehicles like parked stacked around, and there was like uh, a search had been initiated. There was three women that had gotten off trail up by the top of Mount Seymour, and uh, had and a search had started. And and I'm like, you know, I'm driving a big park ranger truck with lights on the top, and I. <laughs> I'm like I'm sort of like I was feeling quite sheepish because I had no idea what to do. There was clearly an emergency situation happening. There's helicopters flying around. There's RCMP, but more importantly, there's like all these um, this this team of people dressed in these red Arcteryx outfits, like you know, <laughs> all like staging with radios and getting out there, and and they were all teaming up and going off in different directions, and like like 25 people, 25 volunteers showing up to go find these three in- individuals that had got an off trail and. Um, it's crazy, you know, and, and that's, those are good memories again. And, and I guess the majority of people, I think in my time with this, so I've been in the outdoor rec industry for, I, I say now over 30 years, really between school, park ranger, um, risk management, and now with this, and, and in general, the public are learning a little bit more about search and rescue volunteer, the North Shore series came out, that was really enlightening for many. Yeah. Um, but unless you're like, involved 
either incident prevention on my side or responder or land manager or uh, uh, mutual aid agency, if it's parks, if it's BC Ambulance, if it's uh, um, the Ski Hills um, helicopter agency, you know, there's many people involved. There's a lot of people in that equation that bring people home. And I don't think the majority of the public realize what it takes to pull one of those calls off. Yeah, that was probably the most remarkable thing of, of my experience, particularly those first few years that I was, you know, uh, the, the ranger on the North Shore and just how incredibly um, skilled the team, the North Shore rescue team was and the commitment that those uh, that that team had to just going out and finding strangers and bringing them home. I remember driving down the mountain uh, on Christmas Eve and, and and all of a sudden a call came over the radio. Mountain biker had broken his back on the trail. And like, of course, I'm going for family dinner. I'm just like, oh man, this is a bummer. Goddamn mountain bikers <laughs> hucking themselves <laughs> off these structures and trying to fly. And like, obviously, once in a while they break. I mean, and you know what? I was just like, we ended up. I, w- I was I was fortunate enough to participate on that call. I was I was I was I was uh, tasked out as part of the team to to pack them out. And I couldn't like. There's like 15 people foregoing their Christmas Eve to pack this you know, gentleman out who made a terrible decision around his capability. He wasn't capable of flying, as it turned out. He, uh, he Gravity took over and slammed him into a tree, and he broke his back. And f- fortunately, he was, he was okay. But, you know, um, nonetheless, the, the commitment of these individuals, I was just so blown away. And I remember, like, they were seeing Christmas carols as they're packing this dude out at, like, 6 o'clock at night oh my in gosh. the dark, down the trail. I'm like, man, like, yeah. these folks are gems. So making the best of it, making the best of the situation. Right. And, and you yeah. talk about, the, you know, you talked about numbers in the first call you were on and then that mountain bike one incident. And, you know, in British Columbia, we have 79 search and rescue groups. So North shore is one of 79. And on those groups, we have about 2,500 volunteers, 2,500 unpaid professionals who go out on Christmas Eve, Christmas day, Thanksgiving, leave their family, their friends, their work. So the support system that they have at home, and in their work is is unbelievable. It really is unbelievable, especially for those high call volume SAR groups like North Shore, like Revelstoke. You know, we have excellent data that allows us to drive our strategies. And, and we know that certain teams have a much higher call volume based on many things. But, you know, and that's why we've placed our team in Revelstoke this winter is for that very reason. And that's why I'll place my outreach team in the Sea to Sky Corridor for summer because we know that's the highest call volume. So there's reasons that we would target different um, different areas in the province. Yeah, we're so we're so fortunate though to have this network of volunteers and the the culture of searcher search and rescue is so it's so cool and I and I you know I I've been very lucky as a well, most of my rangers and one or area supervisors have worked for me one way or another have participate in a search community and are, are part of a volunteer group and so I'm quite exposed to it and uh, I, I just think it's amazing the commitment and the work that that they've done and. So I think it's important to keep that in mind when we are talking about like how do we reduce the amount of times that these individuals have to be called out to deal with the, you know what can be a tragedy or it can be a you know that often these searches don't they don't turn out well sometimes and and uh, they have to deal with you know tragedy and 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 get exposed to that loss and 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 take that on instead of you know somebody who maybe isn't trained or prepared to take on those tragic situations and so it just anyways so that was a good baseline to talk about that part. Um, and, and the importance that we yeah do our best to reduce call numbers. I, 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 I was um. So I was thinking about this in in like 
we kind of were touching on the North Shore. So first of all, just for context, do, do you know how many of that 1,700 calls are for, say, an urban area like in BC, our, our, our highest urban population of, of the lower mainland? Do you know what percentage are in, in, in Vancouver? Yeah, so we we have some stats that really help us out. So we know that um, if we want to do seasonal, because that's how I kind of visualize and, and run my outreach teams. Um, in 2020, we know that just under 30% of the call volume in the summertime for 2020 uh, is for hikers. So just under 30% of that call volume is for hikers. And we know that's in the Sea to Sky region. So we know that when, when I say that region for us with BC Search and Rescue, um, which is another hat I wear and another volunteer role, the Sea to Sky region for BC SARA runs from Pemberton all the way to Hope. So of course that encompasses um, a number of SAR groups. There's actually eight in that region for, uh, for BC SARA in that region. Obviously, North Shore is up there. Squamish is up there with big numbers. They had big, big numbers last summer, summer 2020. So much involved in that season, right? With COVID, um, outdoor recreation encouraged, active province, people not traveling. Like that equation was so unique. It's still unique. Very, very unique. So we know that that's a high call volume for summer. For winter, we know for a fact also from uh, data-driven insights that the call volume is for snowmobilers in the East Kootenays. Specifically, we can pin it almost right down to the Revelstoke area. And so we know that that's 30% of the call volume in winter is for snowmobilers and then skiers. So not just not just to say it's all snowmobilers. The next user group is the skiers, um, backcountry and alpine included. So, you know, we're hovering around that um, just above, just below 30% for both seasons. Summer, obviously, for hikers. Uh, and then winter there is for snowmobilers and skiers. You mentioned earlier, Dylan, a little bit about what causes these uh, incidents. Mm-hmm. You, you skirted that a little bit, but and we can also pin that as well, right? So for winter, we know that uh, lost and disoriented is uh, one of the reasons. Uh, injury and then exceeding abilities. So what that does with BC Adventure Smart, it allows me to target messaging around, let's say, navigation, route finding, wilderness first aid training. So I can kind of hit the reasons why these activities are happening. That's where I need to spend some education efforts. Same with summer. We can talk about that. It's similar lost and disoriented injury. Uh, And so they're similar, which, you know, it's, it's a big topic to cover, which is where I we're giving our weekly webinars right now. And we will continue beyond this. This is proving to be a super successful means to reach people. Uh, that last week I reached uh, almost 250 people just on our snow safety education for backcountry. We sat, I sat at my kitchen table where I am now. People chimed in, they registered weeks before and bingo, we talked to that many people. And, and so that allows us to hit the nail on the head with our three T's. We talked about trip planning, training, taking the essentials. We also talked about how involves uh, how it involves search and rescue and how we need to be consider it and how that call goes through, like you and I just talked about. And then we talk to them about what they need to do in an emergency, the importance of stopping, thinking, observing, and planning. Cool. So we'll get into a few of these things. And I, I want to take it to a kind of a, a context of hunters a little bit, because I think that's where this audience is. Or, well, hunt, hunters and gatherers and, and fishers, I think, are probably the folks who would listen to this. Um, so there's a couple of risk factors that I think that that you know, I, 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 I imagine right away when you said sledders that the risk factor increases in a couple fronts and I, and just the, the distance that a sled can travel makes things so much more risky. If your sled breaks down and you're 80 kilometers into the, in, into on top of a glacier, like that, the risk factor is extremely high. I think hunters might share a little bit of that because we typically, 
go into wilderness areas um, and we're trying to get away from other people. Uh, and just by the virtue of that, if we have an uh, injury or an accident, or if we get disoriented, um, yeah, of course, it's quite likely that we'll end up um, you know, being a more complex search or a higher risk search or gets a lot harder to get back without the support of, of search and rescue services. That's right. Um, what are some other risk factors that you can imagine for like, for what would make hunting a bit different or um, some of those wilderness type pursuits that increase the risk factor? Yeah, I, I pulled up some stats I can share with them shortly, but I, you know, it, it's important and I feel like I'm a broken record, but what we have to say applies to all user groups, right? We just talked about a, a number of different user groups up to now, and now we can, um, hit the nail on the head there with hunters and foragers and, 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 and fishing, fishing, but you know, it really goes back to the same message. No matter what you're doing, you need to make a plan and file a trip plan, plain and simple. Uh, you know, your, your risks are, your risks are different, right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the trip plan first then, because that, that seems to be, uh, you know, something that I definitely preach when I'm talking to people about planning and, uh, 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 so walk me through what a trip plan looks like and where, where it would start for someone and what some of the resources are for developing a trip plan. Yeah, awesome. So it's it's our first T and that's where we want you to start. So when I think of trip planning, I think of two components. You need to make a plan and you need to leave a plan. And they each encompass a few things. We've made it super easy. There's an Adventure Smart Trip Plan app. It's free of charge and it prompts you through those processes, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's super helpful for those of us who've made a few hundred of them over our years. Or it's super helpful for someone who's never made one before. Uh, because the more detail, the better. As you know, uh, it prompts you down to everything from group dynamics to where you're going, when you're coming back, what skills do you have, what equipment are you taking, uh, what level of certification do you have, uh, do you have um, food and water, rations, emergency, do you know how to signal for help, what are your communication devices, what vehicle did you take to drop off, who's picking up, like I can go on for a long time about all the details, so what the app does is it allows you just to fill in the fields. So it'll prompt you through all of that. And then you just click to the next page and then you answer all the questions. You just get to fill in the blanks, really. It's quite easy. Uh, we have the list of the basic essentials there. And then you need to add to it season and sport specific, as we know. Uh, there's a, probably a wealthy list, healthy list that you need to add to that with hunting, as I do if I'm snowmobiling or mountain biking. There's always seasonal and sport specific gear to add. So we leave space for that. Then there's that information for your emergency trusted contact. That's in there based on the contacts in your phone. Uh, and then you're allowed to file that with an emergency contact. And we don't collect that information. So just to be clear for your listeners, it doesn't come to me. Um, it doesn't go to Adventure Smart. It just goes into the system and you are transferring that to your emergency contact. So if something goes sideways and they need to contact police, they have the information then and it goes out that way. Okay, so so this is the information package that would then go to RCMP eventually if your emergency contact. And we should just be clear about. I mean, for me, I'm really lucky because you know Rob Wilson. He's a 25 year veteran of SAR, and he's a hunting partner and a friend, and he and we work together. So he's just sort of my emergency contact for all of my adventures um, because not only does he knows the ins and outs of the search community, um, he also knows me and my capabilities and can, can speak to my capacity as an outdoors person. Um, if he's passing on information to 
to uh, to RCMP or a SAR group or a SAR lead. Um, so not only did we have that all that data about what truck we're driving, what boat we're in, where we're going, what valley, when we're supposed to be back, who's on the trip, our training, our equipment, right down to the type of tent and and the fuel that we have. Like everything can go in there and really help provide a lot of information. And we actually just um, if I, I think if you if you're a regular listener, you would have listened to our three part series on our pole bender adventure where we were stuck uh well we were in an emergency situation in the cassiar mountain stuck in a tent uh awaiting rescue essentially a, a pl- plan to come pull us out um but we had left this very detailed trip plan with rob uh, to say this is what we're doing and it included all of our gear and equipment plus all of our you know I, there was two park rangers uh, a, a mountain guide uh, and a fireman all on this trip and everybody we did a lot of planning ahead so <laughs> It actually was to our detriment to some degree because when when the when the pilots were listing out who they were going to pick up because we, so we were stuck in the tent for seven days and we were waiting to get picked up and no doubt when like when the search and rescue community were involved in deciding who's going to get plucked out of the wilderness after this severe storm that we suffered through they looked at our trip plans and go okay well those guys are going to be fine because they've got all the equipment they got the training like they got good comms now those guys we haven't heard from in the pup tent for the last three days we're going to go get those guys right it's true uh, it's true that's that's a really good story actually because and i was thinking about rob who for your listeners i know as well very well too good friend and so you've picked an awesome emergency contact for a number of reasons, right? Like you, you chose him for, for great reasons. He does know you inside and out. So he can give more insight in addition to your detailed trip plan, which is so cool. We, we place a lot of weight on picking that emergency contact. That's why we throw the, throw the word in there, trusted emergency contact. And, yeah. and they have an important role to play. If something goes sideways, they need to be on the money. If you said, okay, I'm supposed to be back by five. If you don't hear from me by six, they need to be aware. And you know what our app does is if that's the case, if five was the cutoff um, verbally, uh, six was the return time supposed to be on the app automatically because you set this up when you go through it to make your plan, it notifies your emergency contact at 6 p.m. Wow, so you're, you're getting cool. a reminder. So you don't have to think, you don't have to remember, you don't have to make your own reminder. The app reminds you. So boom. That's so what cool. that does, yeah. So I set it up so it um, sends a text message to me as well and to my emergency contact. So we both get that notification, let's say at 6 p.m. So if I, for some reason, came home from my ride and forgot to let them know, it reminds me, it's like, oh yeah, I better check out, right? So let's say I do need help though. So now my emergency contact's been notified at 6 p.m. They're gonna phone me and see if I'm around. Sandra doesn't answer. Then they put everything in place. So it, it, it has some nice features. It has some nice features. That's cool. That That's really brilliant. The little checkout system. Um, cause that really takes up the onus away from the individual to have to remember. And I mean, I've certainly been people's contact and, and pop into my mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, gotta, I know. I gotta, I know. Like, oh yeah. The other thing that I, I often think about with it, with my emergency contact is trying to choose someone who's not really emotionally, um, involved with you. Maybe that, that will be able to really provide uh, a cool headed, uh, response and process and they're not, you know, their heart isn't caught up in it. And I can, I think that, so I, I would encourage you to find someone like a Rob who, as much as I love Rob, I know he doesn't, he's not, his heart is not going to break if I'm <laughs> two hours overdue. Oh, but if my, maybe it will. 
<laughs> but my mother, I think I would put her through the ringer if I was three hours late and, and, and put the responsibility onto her to sort out the next steps. That's um, an interesting point, Dale. And it's ironic because I, I know I was just sharing with you before we came on that I just did a podcast with a geocrash group and that came up as well. Because they talked about, well, who should your contact be? And we constantly say trusted emergency contact, trusted emergency contact. But it is nice to have a little bit of space there with that emotional attachment or detachment. Maybe we want something. We want someone who's going to go into action. They have they, they do. They have a role to play. They have a role to play. And, and it could be that the search and rescue groups and volunteers find you faster and in better condition because your emergency contact was calculated, uh, organized, and transferred that information timely so that SAR could get to you faster, which decreases the severity of a call, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a really good point. So it's another thought on emergency contacts. And I, I often use my hunting partner, Jeff, um, who is he's my hunting mentor. So a lot of the places I actually hunt uh, are places that he either pointed to say, hey, you go hunt that, that range is good. There's mule deer there or it's a great place for elk or, or I would have hunted there with him for years for whitetail or elk or whatever. So he's a great resource. So he's part of my emergency contact queue. Um, I don't, you know, he's, he's perfect because he's not emotionally, you know, he's not emotionally concerned about it and he'll eventually, he won't be worried if I don't check in, but he will eventually, um, you know, provide that check-in. So the, I use him as a secondary contact with Rob to provide local insight as to likely what my behavior might have been given the like, so say, say for example, they find my camp and this is something for hunters specifically, like, you know, what a hunter does is fairly predictable in the context of hunting a specific animal. So if, if you found my tent on top of a sheep mountain, like if you talk to a sheep hunter and they would say, well, likely they would have walked along this south facing slope or likely they would have gone over here because okay. that's what a well, that's what a sheep hunter would do which which may help i mean i i guarantee you that if there's a search community looking for me half of those people on the search community are going to be hunters and sheep hunters and they're going to have pretty good right, insight right. as to what to process but it doesn't hurt to have someone who may have already been in the area or have hunted the area has prior knowledge or just knows how to hunt and then and then can provide that insight as a resource to the search manager through the process. So it's another thing I often do. Yeah, it's those, those are great points. And I'll bring them forward when we do some of our webinars coming up because we, we do place a lot of weight on that trusted emergency contact. And those are good. That's just added value right? That's just such added value. It's, it's sports specific added value. And, and I, I often um, refer to the search and rescue volunteers, aside from as unpaid professionals, I refer to them as investigators. That's what they turn into. As soon as that SAR call starts, they have information to review. They have clues to look for, which hopefully would be your app uh, plan on the app would be all of that information. Then they can start to, to steer themselves in the right direction. So the more information, the better, the more local information, the better. If you're, if your other emergency contact there, aside from ROG can give detailed information about your behavior based on their activity also in hunting sheep, that's just like gold. So the more information, the better. Yeah. There's another, we kind of talked about this before our call that, that hunters in their secret spots, there's sort of this culture of not giving away where you hunt right. and so the nature of like leaving a like a breadcrumb trail to where you're hunting is like you know for some of us in our community would be we opposed to that and you know 
I fortunately trust Rob enough and and, and know that he's likely <laughs> not going to go poach my favorite sheep spot. And and in fact, you know, we 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 incorporate the inReach device into a lot of our our comms uh, and and you know checking in. We you know on our hunts, we typically check in once a day to our emergency contact to let them know, or twice a day actually to let them know that we're we're okay and we're on track. And the inReach device actually provides the GPS location of where we're calling in from. So, so on our, we, we did a, our last year or that, earlier this year, uh, Selena, Jenny and I did a 150 kilometer whitewater rafting trip down oh. a Northern river. And then we hunted a bunch of spots along the way and climbed up mountains and stuff. So, so for Rob, it was tons of fun. Cause you could like every day we were somewhere <laughs> else and other, every day we're up a different mountain. It's like, you know, it was great checking in all the way along, but it, it's, you know, the, the, the benefit of having your someone know where you are certainly outweighs the potential of, you know, someone poaching your spot. And and uh, is there, is, and I think I think you emphasized earlier, but is it, if we use the app, we're not giving our hunting spots away, right? No, good question, and I'm glad you asked because the answer, the short answer is no, and I'm really good at long answers. So I'll give you the short answer first, and then I'll go <laughs> to the long answer. You and I are both good at long answers. Uh, so no, that doesn't give anything away. What it does is it's only there in case of emergency. So I I know that there's um, different user groups out there if it's foraging, hunting, uh, fishing, um, maybe even some backcountry enthusiasts that like to have their it's a secret spot they're not going to share they're not going to even on their instagram posts they're not going to put the location they just want it to be a beautiful wonderful visual secret that's totally fine but when you know what hits the fan and somebody needs to come and help you we need to know that location so that's where the app comes in where it's super handy so nobody knows now except for your emergency contact and rcmp and sar so you want them to know at that point. You want them to know at that point. So that's when it's important. That's when it will be accessed and not before. So it stays confidential until it's actually in the hands of the search party coming to find you. At that point, you really want them to know where your secret spot is. So that, you okay, got it. Cool. You got it. Okay. I'm not sitting here collecting all of these hunting spots. Trust me. For one, it's not my activity. Two, I don't need to have your information. And I'm not <laughs> interested in collecting where you go. No. Yeah. No, but I, I'm really, I'm, I, I, I really like this, this app idea, making it easy for people, making it, it becomes part of habit. It's, it, and then, and then I absolutely having that reminder function. I mean, that just makes it, that makes a ton of sense. So, um, okay, we're going to talk about trip essentials too. There's two more T's we want to talk about. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about, we, we talked about the search community a little bit off the bat. And, you know, another thing that makes hunting unique, of course, is that we're, we're, we're in remote areas, which typically means that we're, we're going to be, you know, if there is a call, it's going to be coming out of a remote community or a rural community to come and find the search. So we're not, I mean, We've got the all-star team here on the North Shore, which many of us are familiar with. They own TV show, and they've got an incredible team. And uh, But if I'm up in sheep country, the closest town is going to be Fort Nelson or Watson Lake or or maybe Whitehorse to, to some of these areas that we may find ourselves in as, as adventure, you know, out on an adventure. Uh, can, you, can you give me an idea of what, like, what, the rural search and rescue community is like and, 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 and do they have the capacity to respond to these types of emergencies that might come up? Yeah, it's, it's so good that you've asked for information on SAR groups outside of the South Coast. <laughs> it's, it's really uh, refreshing to talk about. And, and we know where the high call volumes are and we can't dismiss that. And we know that's South Coast and in Kootenai's winter. 
there's a whole other part of our province that's busy, active, healthy, has SAR volunteers, and it's vibrant um, on both sides of recreation and education with Adventure Smart plus response. So we divide, we, BC SARA, divides the province up into 12 different regions. Uh, I pulled some stats for you today from our data, and it, it was it's interesting. I just love pulling this up. It's so fun. So we know, and I'm just talking 2020 stats because we're just barely into this year. Um, we know that the Northeast has the majority of the tasks in relation to hunting. Um, okay. and, and so that's that's a component of our province that's busy. The next one in line would be Central, Central BC. Uh, and then we would go to the Southeast, and then we would go to Vancouver Island and then southwest and northwest. So it gives you a little gist. So let's go back to the most common one, northeast. So the SAR groups in that area, like you said, it's a it's a broader part of our province. 24 of our 79 search and rescue groups are in the north. Mm-hmm. So when a call happens there, it's totally different than down here on the south coast where you and I spend a lot of time. And, and we know where things are easily accessible times. Uh, it can usually be shorter than up there. It can, they could be driving six, seven, eight hours just to get to a trailhead to meet the command station before they even actually start their search and rescue activities, right? So mm-hmm. even just um, getting to their base is, uh, uh, there's a time lapse there. So let's say someone in the Northeast where most of those calls happened in 2020 for hunters, that's where the abilities of the hunters to be prepared to wait to be prepared to hunker down like you did, uh, to be prepared for that that period of time based on the weather and your rations and what you can do. Hopefully there's not an emergency in the sense of first aid requirement. But again, that goes back to our second T, which is training. Everyone in that party needs to have some form of bushcraft or wilderness first aid uh, so that they can actually take care of that. So that the time up there is a huge factor. It comes right to the top of that surface of what's involved in the search and rescue volunteers response. So the time, um, and then their abilities would be different, right? That, that they would need to be um, super savvy in, in that form of terrain, in that backcountry, in, in that um, those that weather up there versus the skills that are down here on the coast and different ranges throughout the province. So that's what's awesome about BC Search and Rescue is there's these specialty groups that shine and shine bright and do an awesome job at what they do because they are highly skilled, unpaid professionals that just, uh, the only fault is they have a hard time saying no. I guess that's why they keep giving back to their communities and keep helping because that's just that's just in them. They're wonderful people. But in the North, it's definitely unique. There's no question. Yeah, for sure. I think the, you, I think the, I think the one thing that you just highlighted for me, and I think I'll, inter- I'll introduce this to some of my education, is that time that it's going to take to get found as a hunter like it's not gross or seymour like they're gonna helicopters gonna be flying over your head within two hours after the call if you're you know for some of the searches here in the lower mainland um but out there you know there's often you know there there's weather is is one of the main factors i'm sure in the majority of calls is that and if you have heavy weather like if it's snowing or raining or fog in the mountains and it's socked in helicopter's not going to come and get you Nope. And maybe you can't get the jet boat up the river because the river's blown out because of the weather. Like there's a lot of factors that are limiting to even get there. That's what's caused the problem in the first place. And it certainly was our situation on our fly-in trip that had we had an accident, uh, you know, we you know we certainly couldn't have got help. We, we couldn't have walked out. Um, at just the distance we were, hundred miles in, we flew hundred miles in. So clearly not walking out. 
Um, no, no. So. And, and as we talk about time, Dylan, it's interesting because, you know, we've got all this data and we can calculate how long this call took to that call. So on an average, um, it, it, for, for a subject to be found and brought back, it's eight hours. So we know that oh. some calls are short and sweet down here on the coast or through the corridor or in the valley. That's 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 understood. Short and sweet still could be two or three, three hours, right, as you know. Um, and then some calls could be well more than eight hours. But I, I like to say that in the sense that I want people to think about the time frame, uh, especially right now or hunting season for you, let's say fall. Uh, the, the daylight hours are a huge factor. The weather is a huge factor. And so that window of success or opportunity, I should say, that window of opportunity for search and rescue to use, to look for you, find you, locate you, administer first aid if necessary, transport you, is super small. Oh, it's, yeah. It's totally. super small, right? I think that window is really tight. So you kind of have to, as you sit around your table and make that plan and file the trip plan, you have to think, okay, if we have to spend the night tonight because Johnny broke his ankle and Susie's fell, fell and hit her head, what do we need to spend eight hours out there in the rain, in the snow, in the dark, in the cold? So it sounds dire. I don't mean to sound so pessimistic, but we have to kind of prompt ourselves through these um, scenarios. It's really good to think about the scenarios. No, I like that. That's, that's another great thought is like, you know, yeah, when, when you're in late fall, like there's not a lot of time to come find you. It's not the middle of summer where you've got, you know, 16 hours of sunshine or something, right? Like, no, that's, that's insightful. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I, okay. So let, let's, let's, let's get on to the next. So we we had a couple, we have three T's we have to talk about. So g give me another T that we should be talking about. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about trip planning, make a plan, leave a plan, use the app. Boom. That's easy. Uh, so let's talk about training. Um, you have a list of training, uh, skills and ability certification. We all do based on what we love to do, where we work, what we love to do outdoors to play. So that comes into play for all activities. So if we have the right training to do the activities that we do, if something goes sideways, it can help us. If if we need to mitigate risk, it helps us through that um, uh, analysis of what should we do. If we have the training to, if I can just talk about physical training. If we're physically capable of getting from A to B, we can get from A to B. If we're mentally strong, we can get through a situation. So it, training goes from mentorship from when you're a child, like when my dad taught me how to use an axe, because that was my job to fill the wood box every day after school and work, you know, great skill to have now. Didn't know what that was training then. Um, uh, you know, first aid, if it's physical fitness, if it's avalanche skills training, uh, if it's wilderness um, awareness, backcountry awareness, and the list goes on, I'm sure for hunters too, all around safety and preparedness. So training is a big, big one obtaining that training and keeping it current that's ongoing right as we continue to get outdoors as we all mature uh and, and try different activities or take our activities to another level we yeah. also then need to take our training to new levels yeah i think the other you know there's a few things from a hunting context that i think about like and i, and I don't know if we i really like this where you, you were talking about that the ability, like people working within their ability, and and a lot of our, our these searches are as a result of people exceeding their abilities. Like Buddy yeah. on his mountain bike thought he could jump the thirty foot gap, he was exceeding his ability, and ended up breaking his back. Um, yep. And I think this is probably, you know, this is where I've often had a conversation with myself when I've been in the mountains hunting. It's like 
do I have the physical ability to take on, like, I'll see an animal in a, in a precarious location and I'm like, do I have the physical ability to get there? And, and is it, is it, you know, do I have the, the skill set to get in and out of there, whether it's physical strength, time of day, obviously there's all those other questions around, but, but really it's, you know, not over extending myself beyond my capabilities. And that includes your training and what you're capable of doing. And I think that's where I've, you know, got myself into trouble or certainly as I've matured, sort of been able to talk myself back and say, okay, that's not a reasonable decision to go after that animal or try and hike out of this camp in one day. I I just physically can't do it or I don't have the skill set to do what I'm thinking I'm going to do. Like, we kind of we, we we definitely like on that rafting trip, uh, and if you have if you have three hours of to play just to spare, you can listen to our three part series on it. There's some great stuff in there, but uh, but definitely one of the things we reflected on was like, you know, we were not whitewater paddlers going into that trip. We did a lot of training going into it, but that river spat us out pretty good. Like right. we had a couple of high water days that we didn't really know. We didn't have the, the the experience to know that it was probably a day to stay off the water. Right. Um, every other day was pretty manageable, but there was a couple of days that really, you know, combined with the particular f- river features that we were going through at the time, caused us some grief and, and some challenges and and really just being, you know, outside of our abilities. And that could have gone sideways on us. And Absolutely. Like, it, well, it did go sideways. We just didn't die, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no. It, it, it's, it's interesting, right? And I think... What can happen sometimes for those of us who have different levels of experience outdoors, some more extreme than others, I think it often sometimes uh, can give people a false sense of security. And and we think because we've done A, B, and C for the last 30 years that now we can do X, Y, and Z. And, and kudos to those of us who've actually extended that training or um, gain the abilities to actually do it, but and and you guys succeeded. I'm not dismissing that whatsoever. I'm just saying you admitted too, though, like you went in with maybe you should have had a few more skills in your back pocket. Correct me if I'm wrong, or or assessed it differently, or you weren't as versed as you realized that you could have been um, for those situations. All of it in the equation because everything was there playing it, but yeah, it's it's really interesting that training aspect. I think some people sometimes might not place enough weight on it as I think they should. And and it can be right down to that physical fitness, right? Because sometimes that can get you through a situation just as much as that mental well-being can get you through a situation. And and having that that strength of mind to help yourself make decisions, manage your risk, um, not exceed your abilities. Like yeah. if we go back to the reasons why we have calls, it's lost and disoriented. So maybe if you're making decisions about where to go, you know, that's part of it, the training. If you're needing to apply first aid, that goes down to training and exceeding those abilities. Again, these are all decisions that we make. Uh, So, you know, we can make it simple math. We know what the causes are. We know what we need to target. And uh, we can all, I say we collectively, because we all love to spend time outdoors, use it in our processes of um, planning to head outdoors. And then it will yeah. be easier and safer. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Yeah, hunting in itself, I think, lends itself to having challenges. Like for one, it's very objective oriented. I mean, you're you're trying to climb up a mountain or somewhere into a precarious place that an animal feels safe and shoot it, and then pack it out of that mountain environment. And 
I have a, I had a really, uh, an excellent conversation with the, with the, with the fellow I met who, who was rescued from the, the Spatsizi provincial park with the sheep that he had okay. shot and narrowly missed. He should have, he should, he, he was, he wasn't prepared, um, to deal with what the weather that hit him. And, uh, and he narrowly survived, just happened to have a, just a sliver of a window open up and they plucked him out before he went unconscious, before he, he was goner. So wow. like, and that was clearly because, you know, he, he, he had made a decision to shoot an animal solo and the objective overwhelmed his decision-making in that situation. And now granted, if the weather hadn't hit, everything would have been fine. And just like for us, if the, if the water levels hadn't come up, it would have just been fine. Yeah. But. Yeah. You know, playing on the edge of that risk, it, 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 you can lend, you can, you can, well, you can end up in some precarious situations and, and maybe need the services of fish and rescue. Okay. Let's move to T number three. Yeah. T number three. So, uh, take, take the essentials and, and, and we used to list a list of 10, um, and we don't refer to that anymore because we don't want you to stop there. There's a heck of a lot more than 10. So we do talk about taking the essentials, take essentials, however you want to phrase it. Um, and then you need to, I always think this is the extra highlighted bullet point, add season and sports specific gear to those essentials. So we've got our basics, right? Those are listed on our website at adventuresmart.ca. You've got your basics. I've seen you do some demos and pack your pack and it's just so strategically placed. It's awesome. And, and, and so we have our foundations of our essentials. And this is what we talk about in our weekly webinars as well is that foundation is kind of your base. That's, that's your foundation of your house, really. It's a foundation of your pack for your emergency rations, for those what ifs. And then you add to it season and sports specific. So the basics are easily packed, right? And strategically placed in your pack for weight distribution. Um, and then you need to add to a season and sports specific. So for winter, we've got our avalanche transceiver, shovel and probe. Um, I'd love to hear your your additional pieces for hunting. Uh, I know on our website at adventuresmart.ca, we've got a list of extra hunting uh, essentials. So I'd love to do a little comparison. I'm sure yours will win. But nonetheless, uh, it's important to know that you're taking those for those emergencies. And that's when you get out there and if something happens, you're going into that stash and you're going to be super grateful that you prepared that efficiently, that you packed everything accordingly. And now you can actually make shelter. You can eat. You have fire if need be. You know how to make the fire because you had the training. Uh, you know how to communicate. Your plan is in place because you filed it on the app. You know help is coming. They know where you are because you left it on the app. Uh, and there will be success. And you know how to yep. signal to that aircraft or respond to SAR on ground because you have got your whistle on your zipper. You've got your, you know, the list goes, you set okay, yourself so up for comfort, Rear. Okay, so give me, give me this, bang out your 10, and then I'm going to see what my, and then I'll add what I think are the hunting specifics. So what, so what is the general kit required or general okay. gear that you use? So our general, so we talk about the basics. We talked about just that basic list and uh, we used to identify it as 10 essentials, but nonetheless, here it is. So we've got flashlight with extra batteries or light source, I'd like to say, uh, a fire making kit, knowing how to use it. A signaling device, one example is um, a signaling card or a whistle. Of course, your voice is going to get super tired out there, muffled by the outdoors, weather, everything, forest, extra food and water, extra clothing, the right type of extra clothing, uh, nav and communication devices, navigation and communications, first aid kit to the kit assessed for your training, obviously, emergency shelter or a version of sh shelter making, um, utility knife and sun protection. So that's just your 
that's your basic, right? That's just, okay, I've started. Um, now I, I want to build on that, right? I want to build on that. Um, and then so we, we go into, so are, does, does that compare slightly to your basic? basic? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I've, a couple of giant screw ups I've had over the year that I've learned better. And I, I, I was actually cursing um, Pedzel, the, he- the headlamp company, because like, yep. once again, my headlamp was on in the bottom of my pack. So a dead headlamp is useless. And then and then I was I was hanging out with my partner Mickey. She's like, "Well, you know, there's an emergency shut off, or like a, there's a lock shut off on them." And this is the newest version. They finally, I, yeah. I, I literally said, "When will Petzl make a a switch that doesn't go on <laughs> in the bottom of my pack?" And she's like, "As I said that, she's like, well, you just see that button there, just hold that down, and then it, it automatically locks off." So, oh man! So now he's all like. Oh, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> I know, so. I know. And it's funny for years, we've been doing this for a long time, 17 years. And I often say, okay, put your batteries in backwards. So yep. they're, you know, they're in there, you know, they're good. And then when you're ready to use it, put them in the right way. So that's not going to happen because we've heard that we've all had that story happen to us or heard it over and over. Totally. So the other thing I do, I have two headlamps. I mean, the headlamp is so light that even if instead of having an extra set of batteries for the one headlamp, um, have just two headlamps. They have one with full charged battery with the battery lock on that's in your kit. And then you have another one that you can use for, you know, around camp or whatever. That one that one bleeds off the, the, the battery power. But when you do need it, then you've got it. And you could do that walk out at night with that sheep on your back or whatever. You need that emergency or hopefully, you know, walking out. Sure. That was one thought I had with, 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 with the kit there. Um. There was a couple other things that you mentioned, and I had a couple thoughts, but I've, I've already forgotten. But I'll, I'll I'll add to my my list here. The um, I th- I've come to a place now where I I was a little bit reluctant about bringing a tarp with me everywhere I go. Yeah. But I mean, tarp the sill tarp weighs a pound now, and with with some line and a guy line, you can pretty much set it up in a few minutes. If it starts to rain, uh, you've got. A shelter to get out of the rain and stay dry. One of the most important things, you know, with extended trips like hunting, is that you just can't get wet. So if you get wet, your trip is is definitely going to be compromised because you you may not be able to dry out. So whenever the clouds look like they're going to start to rain, like I I string up my tarp and I just sit underneath my tarp and then I have a have a hot meal and 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 a cup of soup or a cup of tea and just wait out the rainstorm and then the rain stops. So you pack up the tarp and keep on going. And of course. This tarp also serves as an emergency shelter if you were to get, um, you know, in, in an emergency situation and you didn't have your tent with you. Yeah. Um, th- my thought around, like, w- like, I really liked your comment around the the time frame it takes to get searchers to you in a hunting environment, and that, and and I think, I, I, so the way that I've always thought about this is like, I could with with a tarp over top of me. You know, sitting with my back against a big old fir tree with a fire out in front of me, if I can, if if, if I can make one, if the forest you know, conditions allow for it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm sitting there with my Gore-Tex shell on and my down puffy underneath it and my rain shell pants, I can sit there for hours, like for days, probably, yep. and not expire, not die, because the the insulation properties of the down, keeping the moisture off me, the wind protection of the Gore-Tex layer. Like I'm going to be pretty comfortable, and I committed enough as a hunter that everywhere I go, I can go with that tarp, down jacket, and Gore-Tex shell, and then whatever my hunting outfit is, yeah, what I'd be wearing. So, and I feel like I can pretty much survive anything down to minus ten with that kit with me, and that's not that uncomfortable. In fact, 
that down jacket comes in handy all the time when you're, you know, if you're out in the wind and you're glassing or looking, you put your downy on, or of course, if it rains, you put your green jacket on. So it's all, it's all multi-purpose. And I think that's a big one for us as hunters. We're, we're trying, we're always trying to cut down weight because we want to be more comfortable, but what weight will help us ensure that we survive a night out if we get caught out. So those are the things I, like I've, I've kind of, you know, really pushing people to bring now. You know what you have on your side though, and it's nothing that is, that fits in your pack. And I'm assuming some of you have it and not all of you have it. You have resiliency and you have experience in time outdoors, which, which are worth their weight in gold as well, right? You have that ability to, to sit there. So I'm not saying someone who doesn't have your resiliency and experience couldn't sit there in the same scenario and be okay. I think you, you, you would just be more okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for some of us who've spent time outdoors and, and, and I just think, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a growth thing. I think it's, um, it's what we gain over time in being outdoors, either through work or our, our play outside or our passions. Uh, it builds, right? And, and maybe we had a little bit or a lot of it when we were park rangers a, a few years ago. Uh, and, and, and we were exposed to a few experiences in those jobs that allowed us to build it and make it even better. I, that's how I kind of think about it. Like it's, 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 it's a good thing and it's a, it's a great thing to share with others who are just coming into these activities and sports. If you're able to mentor any young hunters, then they're going to only gain from your resiliency. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about tangible gear and what can get us through situations, but you know, there's also that strength that comes with getting us through situations that can help us in, in a situation when we're waiting for search and rescue and it, and it can really make or break a situation. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I mean, I think that, well, a you know, a lot, number of hunters do have that experience. I think it's, it's really cool what's happening in the hunting community. There's a whole new, uh, generation of non people coming from non-traditional hunting backgrounds joining this this pursuit and, and finding their way and i think it's similar to the backcountry ski community or or even the sledding community like people are, are excited to get out there excited to learn but there's so much to learn like you, and, and there's so much simple stuff that you just like you know where do you where are you gonna learn this stuff because like i mean I, I i was so fortunate i grew up with you know bushcraft bushcraft men like experts like yeah you know, fellas that have just spent their entire, because they were 12 years old living in the woods and showing me how to build a fire or how to, how to make a shelter in a hurry or how to jet boat down a river or all the things that like these, these life skills. And I, I, I talk about that in the introduction to the, the hunting course is like how hunting just allows you this, like all these opportunities to learn these like fundamental outdoor skills from putting on chains to using a winch to using a chainsaw. Like there's so many skills. So you know, even if you're fairly experienced in some of that stuff, something as simple as just knowing how to start a fire or, you know, knowing what to do, like it, it, there's lots to learn. So even, I think even the most experienced hunters or there still lack some of the key training and skills that you could all, you know, probably take something from this podcast or, or join at one of your webinars and just kind of get a more robust exposure to some of the simple things we can do to be more prepared. Yeah, it came up um, recently in some chats at work. We were talking about how if we want to look back, however long you want to look back on, um, let's say, hiking clubs or mountaineering clubs or, or you know, membership uh, groups that would join together based on an activity, right? Let's just use hiking, hiking club as one example. They don't seem to be as as commonly joined anymore. 
And and so what I think gets lost in that process is is kind of what you just talked about and what we learn along the way from a group, from that mentorship, from that guidance, from someone who has experience, from just discussions, from going out and physically succeeding or failing. Um, so when we don't have that group setting to do it anymore, I, I don't know if if different generations, and I won't pick on any, um, as they join clubs or don't join clubs what they gain in loss, I think is, is substantial. And, and when we don't have that setting anymore, and let's say if, if it's more screen based or electronic based, or however we gain those access to those resources and skills, it's uniquely different than it was, let's say 25 or 30 years ago or more when, Mm -hmm. when those hiking clubs were, were huge, right? The membership was massive and, and the, and the camaraderie ship there was really high and healthy. And, and I think that's morphed and changed a little bit, but again, that, that just kind of speaks a little bit to training and, and what we get from each other, I think, which is, which is super helpful. We, what we can get from each other. Yeah. Well, I think definitely we're seeing that people are, I mean, and just, you, you mentioned that people are connecting over webinars and want to learn over webinars. I mean, it's probably a function of what's happening here with COVID, but I think it's also like just the amount of people that are learning from YouTube and like, you know, it's a, it's amazing the skills you could learn there and you can do a lot of training and preparation ahead of time or get lots of ideas how to approach stuff ahead of time. So yeah. I mean, it's a great thing, but it does, I don't think it diminishes the, we do this thing called um, the Hunter Field Skills Workshop in uh you know a couple times a year and 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 the whole thing is designed around bringing like uh mentors uh together with new hunters and and showing them simple things and actually the first thing that we do with the group well we we send them out on an an orienteering exercise where they have to go do a like a do a treasure hunt around the uh, the ranch that we operate and they get to use compass and map and the whole thing's designed for them to actually have a total like disaster and, and realize how oh. difficult it is so that they'll learn we go over the skills but we let them kind of go out in groups <laughs> and try to like figure all this stuff out and kind of teach each other a little bit and hopefully they come back in time for dinner um but the uh the other thing that we do in the, and the one that we get the most feedback from the positive feedback is that we show them how to build a fire and like you know you could ask you know you got 12 people there like who here can build a fire in under five minutes everybody puts up their hand right sure and then, you know, okay, here's a lighter and here's a candle. If you could figure out what to do with them here and here's a forest and you know, you guys got five minutes. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've got marshmallows ready to go and we'll see who can do it. <laughs> like, so get, get, how many people out of 12 people do you think can start a fire? Oh man, it's got to be yeah. low at the rate we're going with the story. Three. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Three people can start a fire with a lighter and, uh, and a candle, um, and then, but, you know, so we let them fail first, which is the best way to learn is, you know, make sure, sure people fail. Is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always is. Maybe not. No, it's <laughs> fine. Uh, but, uh, and then we, and then we, and then Jeff Horsfield, who's, you know, my, one of my, my hunting mentor, he shows them how to build a fire based on using the Horsfield, you know, patented how to start a fire technique. And it's remarkable how well it works. And people are just blown away. They're like, I had no idea that making a fire could be this easy. That's and great. it's just a skill. And, and yeah. it's just these, like, and, and I, and, you know, I was probably 18 when Jeff just happened to show me this. And I was like, huh, that's yeah. just so simple. It's so it's easy. So and it, and it, and up till then I was building the teepees and the fire cabin. No, that's all. No, there's a whole other system. It's way better. And you, right. to find out, you got to come to my Hunter Field Skills Workshop. I do. Right. And I will. That's okay. <laughs> Invitation accepted. Invitation accepted. Absolutely. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I have, I have a, okay. I, I want to sign off here pretty quick or let you get back to, to life here. But I did have a question that I, was kind of in my mind. I thought maybe you could add some insight to it. 
So like I've been on trips where like, you know, where I'm wondering like at what point do I make that call to 911 to say, "Hey, I'm in trouble?" or when when do I go for self-rescue here? And, and what's that line and 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 like am I going to be shamed by the search and rescue community because I've got a, a a badly sprained ankle and I run out of ibuprofen and I just can't make it the last five kilometers out. Like, can you add some insight as to what that threshold might be, especially for hunters? Cause I think that we're, we would feel very guilty about make, hitting that SOS button on the spot device or the in reach or placing that call to nine one one. Can you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you hit a few points there and they were all really great because I think there is um, that um, idea of what what's going to happen when I hit that SOS or what's going to, you know, maybe if I just wait a little bit, maybe if it just stops raining a little bit more or maybe if the swelling goes down on my ankle, like I can get through this or, or I'm sure I can limp out five kilometers and then swim across the river. You know, you, you think of all these things of, of I can do it, but you know, if, if you think about the, um, we talked about at the early part of the session is we talked about being compassionate and empathetic and understanding and considerate of our search and rescue volunteers. It starts right there. And, and it, well, it starts when you leave your trip plan at home, but it, it, what it does is the sooner you make that call, the better, you mm-hmm. know, you know, there's a time lapse, especially in the North, right? We just talked about that distance up there and the terrain in general, um, and, and just to gather. So we know there's a time factor here. So the more you delay that, so that you you know you're in distress, you know you need help, and now you're going to delay it two or three hours for some reason, um, because maybe stubbornness comes into play. Maybe you think you can make yourself okay and get out, but whatever the reason is, what if what if you delay and then you still need help? You probably mm-hmm. will still need help because you thought three hours ago you needed help. Now you've just made some decisions to think that you can solve your problem. The sooner the better. They would rather get that call sooner than later for many reasons so that they can get to you and bring you home. There's number one. That's all we want. Your destination for every activity is home. Mm-hmm. Number two, they need they need to put their ducks in order, literally put their ducks in order to bring you home safe and sound. That takes time. That takes mm-hmm. effort. It takes gear. It takes coordination, organization, different agencies, takes proper weather. It takes an opportunity a good opportunity, a safe opportunity to get you out safe and sound. So again, if we delay that call, it delays everything they have to do to get to you. So you and I, if we're out there injured or hurt or in distress, I I don't want any delay and either do SAR. They would, and I've heard them say it to my face and they've said it to other subjects as well that they brought home. They would rather be on their way to look for you, to get to you, either driving on foot on the trail in the helicopter and be stood down the call canceled mm-hmm. uh then 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 anything they, they, they don't mind that because then they know you're safe and sound they know you're home versus there being a delay so if there's a delay and you're out there overnight when you weren't prepared to, st- mm-hmm. to spend the night that's an issue now and it's an issue for you as a subject it's now even a bigger issue it's just a big of an issue for search and rescue volunteers because it's another added part part to this equation we want to keep the the search and rescue um call to as few layers as possible. And if we delay that, it adds more layers. If it's weather, severity, decrease in subject, um, health, um, abilities, there's, you know, we want to keep that to the minimum. So the short answer to your question, which I told you earlier, I'm not good at, is (laughs) you need to make a phone call as soon as possible. Remember the number is 911. There is no charge for search and rescue in British Columbia. 
And and it's really important to know. And, 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 you know, I pulled some stats this afternoon to share with you just to give you some gist. So we have a list of a few activities that happen for search and rescue. And in 2019 and 2020, um, hunting ended up coming up as the 10th activity for search and rescue calls. Hiking is number one, no matter what. And, and down we go. So, um, you know, give, give me the whole list. Give me the whole list. So what do we fall behind? So give, give me the one through yeah. 10. And we'll... So let's just talk 2020 because it just happened and it was such a wonderful year. Let's talk about it. So yeah. 2020 is uh, hiking uh, was just around 30% of that call volume, just a little bit less. Um, uh, and then we jumped down to snowmobiling after there was a category in there that was vague. So we weren't able to identify There's There's a few check marks on the incident summaries mm-hmm. that we click off. So then we hit snowmobilers um, driving. Some of our SAR groups respond to road rescue. Mm-hmm as you might be aware of, out in Hope and Lillooet area. Um, and then after driving, it goes down to mountain biking and cycling. Then we've got ATVs, boating, skiing, camping, hunting, and then swimming. So, you know, it's a really interesting list of user groups. And it it's just like, I love getting my hands on this information because it allows me then to share certain messages with your user groups based on those causations that I mentioned earlier, right? Lost, disoriented, injury, exceeding ability. I can target those user groups for those activities based on that. So, but you know, if you want to think about it in, in a certain manner, we talk about where you fall on the list. Um, it may not seem like a lot if, if you talk about percentages and such, you know, but if you average it out based on that 1700 call volume, let's say in 2020, 34 of that 1700 calls were for hunters were hunting incidents you know and i suspect that the severity of hunting calls are probably higher than the average hiking call so of the 34 it took the top 34 off the severity um the ones that result in death are probably or, or severe injury are probably a lot higher i guess given the the activity that we're doing the remoteness and the risk factors that the severity factors that you've already spoke to absolutely so, absolutely so. Sure, there's a lot involved in there, and as you know more than me, um, the, the time of year obviously is uh, the higher uh, month would be October, uh, and then we have September, and then we go to August, and then it goes to November. So it's kind of a mishmash there, but yeah, that makes know, sense though. Makes yeah. Sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the probably the most active active hunting month is October, followed by September, and then there's a handful of us who are out in. Uh, August doing goat hunts or sheep hunts or these like high alpine, um, very what are would amount to fairly risky hunts, and then November is sort of the tail end of deer season. So that that makes sense. That's insightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was interested to pull that up today. It was it was very cool. So you know, there there's some some basic stats for you that I wanted to share with you, and and it's really interesting data, and and it's um. It helps me as we come into different seasons, share our messaging appropriately, either through webinars, public safety announcements. I'm on the radio and in the news as much as I can to share this message for all seasons, all user groups. So this was a, a unique opportunity, Dylan, to, to hang out with you tonight and and, uh, and talk how our message applies to what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I've had a lot of fun here and, and I, 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 I do my own uh, hunter education program, which you're aware of, and 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 a big part of it is, is you know safety and survival. And but I've at, I, I've got so much more you know updated material from this. I appreciate it. So it's basically a research session for me. So I feel like I've just uh, stolen all your content. I'm going to feed it right into my next presentation. That's what but, we're here um, for. 
We're, <laughs> we're here for you to use and abuse. It's free. Take it away. Take it and, away. And if, any, it. if any of your hunter friends want to join us on January 21st, we're running a um, an outdoor educator workshop. It's a couple hours to hang out with me on the screen again. And we're going to go over basically what we do and how you can share our messaging in your circles of outdoor recreation. If it's online, face-to-face, webinar, media, you can insert it easily, simply. We're going to give you everything that you need. So if that's of interest, we're, we're here. Otherwise, public sessions are every week too. And everything's on our BC Adventure Smart Facebook events page. Awesome. And then how do people find you on Instagram? Yeah, so we make it easy. We have one handle for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So that's B-C-A-D-V, smart. So just a short version of BC Adventure Smart. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The website, just to make a point, is is awesome. We're about to have a brand new outfit. We're launching a new website within the next month or two. I'm so excited. So that's the national platform. That's where the basic message is, the programs. You can book programs for any province and territory there. But in BC, where we're, we're the most active and robust, hit our socials. That's where we have activity daily. We have trip plan Tuesdays, sledder Sundays, uh, fun little videos here and there. And um, yeah, it's a great spot to engage with us and learn more. That's fantastic. Well, this has been a lot of fun catching up with you, Sandra. There's a ton of good value here for our listeners. So thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I think we'll have a couple a little chat after the call here. And I think we're probably going to talk about webinars and partnering on something fun. So Maybe our listeners will catch that down the road. But thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And here's to a more promising new year and with fewer search and rescue calls as well. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so much fun. Thanks, Sandra. Take care.